0: I want a world in Israel-Palestine, whether it's two states, one state, six states, whatever solutions you want to talk about, the measure is how well does this advance freedom, dignity, security for Palestinians and Israelis in equal measure. That's justice. That's the end that I'm working towards.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I continue to talk to some people who are working to help us improve our democracy by trying to help bridge across our lines of polarization. Today's guest is Greg Khalil, who is co founder and president of the Telos Group. Telos Group works to form communities of American peacemakers, cross lines of difference, and equip them to help reconcile seemingly intractable conflicts at home and abroad. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Greg Khalil at Telos Group. Hi Greg. Hey Nathaniel, great to meet you. Good to meet you too. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, uh, my name is Greg Khalil.
0: I was born and raised in San Diego, live in New York City. Dad was is a Palestinian Christian theologian. My mom was a Danish-American archaeologist, um, so I grew up in different parts of the world, like on archaeological digs and whatnot. As an adult, I became a lawyer, and I couldn't shake the fact that I had this huge family outside of Bethlehem, Palestinian. And I worked on advising the Palestinian leadership on negotiations as an American. But eventually, I saw that, you know, so much of what was happening over there was connected to these real divisions. We have here in the US around politics, around religion. And that led me to found something called the Telos Group, um, which works on not just how America relates to the Middle East, but a lot of these internal divisions and equipping Americans of various different stripes to work around healing those divisions, to deal with intractable conflict and injustice.
1: It seems like an important set of skills and an important place to be, especially as the divisions in this country. Seem to worsen. It's nothing like uh, in the Middle East, but it, the trajectory is uncomfortable, and I worry a lot about the country. Just to to go back through how you got yourself here, a little less briefly than you put it. Tell me a little bit about that experience with having relatives over there, and and how that sort of informed your feelings about the sides there and the people there? That's a complex question for a lot of reasons.
0: So first I mentioned that my parents were archaeologists. And we actually had a dig in Syria when I was a kid. And my parents are some of the most incredible, insane people you could ever imagine. So so what they wanted to do, like when I was seven years old, um, to get to our dig in Syria, they wanted to drive there from San Diego. And we literally crisscrossed the lower 48 states as this educational multi-month journey, put our SUV on a ship, went to Rotterdam, went to my family in Denmark, and then down, eventually we made it to Syria like four months later. And it was during this this time of the last uprising in Syria. So like my first memories of the Middle East, um, first day in Damascus, which became our home, um, was almost killed in a suicide bombing outside my school, the American School of Damascus. And so that's like my very first memory of Syria was of just horror. And it went on from there. It was it was an incredible time too. We lived part-time literally in a Crusader castle or um, near our dig. So, like just this, I mean, it was the most incredible childhood, but there were these horrors there. And so, you know, I didn't get to see a lot of my family in Palestine. We did in Jordan during that trip, but I had these these memories um and these experiences that when we returned to the states. They just didn't sit. It was like, oh my gosh, this place is so violent. It's so unstable. And here I am in sunny San Diego, like playing Foursquare, like <laughs> by the beach, like, you know, these things don't reconcile. And then here are all my, co- I have like more than a hundred first cousins. And so, you know, growing up Palestinian, talking to my family every single week, hearing their stories, growing up in a Christian family. So, you know, the world's oldest Christian community and Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, you know, a heretic and his first followers were heretical jews and arab jews who who you know still date and are you know their their descendants are are part of the palestinian christian community today and so you know i i i grew up in this environment in which like people had no clue what was happening on the ground in the middle east christians had these weird sort of ideas about what should happen in the Middle East. They didn't even know there were Palestinian Christians. If they were, we were just being slaughtered by Muslims or we weren't real Christians because like we don't, you know, have certain evangelical beliefs and and all of that. And there was this real tension there for me growing up. Like, what do I do with all of this? I, I was born into this incredible privilege. I can do whatever I want with my life here in America. And like, I knew that from, from day one and, you know, and, and my cousins who were just like me, you know, same allergy, same bizarre sense of humor, um, all of that, but, you know, ambitious as well. Like, you know, they had no chance for security, safety, stability, education, anything. And, and the only difference was the accident of our birth. So that was, that was something that weighed with me, my entire youth into early adulthood.
1: How did you see the other religions, the adherents of other religions over there?
0: Well, you know, I mean, they they were a little bit foreign. My my parents, my mom is no longer living, but um, so I'll speak in the present tense because my dad is. They were incredibly devout Orthodox Christians are. And so this was a big part of our faith. So like Nathaniel, like, when I say like devout, you know, we have like well over a hundred fast days a year that we observed every single one when I was growing oh up. Goodness. So it's like no animal products, like you know, it's a hardcore religion. And they were incredibly creative and open-minded, and which are two qualities that you don't necessarily associate with each other. This kind of like orthodoxy with this radical creativity and openness. What that meant for me is that. I was very taken with the principles by which they led their lives, but I also had a very ecumenical worldview. And I grew up interested in the arts. I went to an arts high school. I was a musician. Like I, you know, I was like left of liberal. And so I had some, you know, yearnings, as I think many of us progressives do for a world beyond religion, but I didn't have the antipathy to religion that I think that some progressives do who come from religious backgrounds, because my experience of it was not. this this cage. It was rather sort of like this foundation to provide a platform whereby we can root our desire to do good in the world. I just disagreed with what a lot of religious folks were saying was good. But for my general view of religion, it was just, I didn't have this antipathy. I, I, I saw that it shaped culture. I saw that it was important I just I just wanted to be part of a progressive community in terms of my life and, and my understanding of like how I did good in the world. Obviously, as you know from my work, that took a little bit of an unexpected turn in adulthood. You went to UCLA, what did you study there? I, I got two degrees at UCLA, one in music um, and one in French literature. So like nothing to do with any of this.
1: What languages do you converse in?
0: Um, English, (laughs) but I, I like, I can, I can live in like Levantine Arabic and then French. Um, but you know, I have accents and I make lots of errors.
1: Yeah. What made you want to go to law school and get a law degree and so on?
0: Very long story short. Um, I was a classical musician, um, violinist, and that's what I thought I was going to do for a while. Developed a neurological issue with a couple of my fingers, couldn't play anymore and was um, spending some time with family in Bethlehem and just that disjunct that I told you about, like the opportunity that I have and the reality that they were experiencing, which in my view was and is directly connected to these divides in America. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a modern conflict that would not exist but for American influence. And the way that our influence is shaped is, is organized around sort of like culture and old-fashioned, you know, constituency politics. It's less a foreign policy issue and more a domestic issue. So I went there on the ground and, you know, figuring out what am I going to do with my life now that I can't be a musician anymore, you know, with a sense I didn't want to turn away from this. And my dad, who, you know, as I mentioned, was a professor, had a colleague um, and a Jewish-Israeli professor at the Hebrew University in the Technion in Haifa, My family couldn't move freely around um, Israel, but she could. And she invited me to all of these legal conferences and she took me all around, like, you know, over a space of a few months and introduced me to all sorts of people. And I just remember, like, having this new idea about what the law was and what it could be. I've never been motivated by, like, wanting to go make, make a bunch of money, although I you know, now that I'm older, I wish I had valued (laughs) that a little bit, but I just saw that like, oh wow, like, you know, maybe this is a way that I could put my energy and my privilege to service for, for, for my family, um, over here. And then I ended up in law school.
1: And Yale law, no less, which is kind of, I have a number of friends who went there. It's and. It, it's sort of different than a lot of law schools in being more ideas-based, is my understanding. What was your experience?
0: Yeah, it was all ideas-based. I didn't study anything that was relevant to the bar until I took a bar review course like a few weeks before the bar exam. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, did you enjoy it?
0: Yeah. I mean, I really I, I, loved it. It was difficult. I'm not sure in retrospect that law school was the the right decision for me. Yet, I'm, you know, the way this world works where people value things like a pedigree from Yale Law School or whatever, I'm not going to deny it. It's opened a ton of doors, formed a lot of relationships. People think I'm, you know, smart or saying smart things still like 20 years later sometimes when I'm just saying what somebody else said. And that's not fair, but I'm not going to deny that it hasn't helped me out along the way.
1: Yeah and so what was the founding story for telos group it's you and a co-founder it sounds like to begin with from different sides of the aisle but you know what why'd you do this it's wrestling with that tension so i went over my first job out
0: of law school was part of this unusual organization called the negotiation support unit which was set up to provide palestinian leadership with technical support legal communications policy analysis for the peace process with Israel when this was happening. So long story short, I landed this job through this unusual set of circumstances, young, wide-eyed. I was like, oh, perhaps like my ego had a little bit like, oh, I'm going to go like solve Middle East peace because I have this degree from Yale Law School. Um, I don't think I was that bad, but I, I could have been a little annoying, um, to be honest. <laughs> so I went over there and I had a choice in my job do I join the legal and policy part of the unit or the communication side? And I'd done a lot of work in law school and even before law school in advocacy around legal issues. And I'd felt like a lot of these issues were so played out. Like We know what the law and the legal arguments are. The reason that there wasn't agreement wasn't that somebody hadn't come up with some perfect new legal analysis. It had to do with Political will. So, like, how are you telling the story? How are you building movement? How are you building constituency to incentivize or constrain certain actors to want to get agreement, whether it's for two states, whatever that is? Like, we don't need to get into all the details. So, I decided to join a couple of other lawyers in this communications department. And part of my role was to brief all of these visiting dignitaries as, like, this relatively young kid. So, like, I, over four years, I it was crazy, but like, you know, heads of state, um, dozens of members of Congress, most members of the German Bundestag, the uh, British parliament, European parliament, tons of top business leaders. Like if they were coming to have conversations about Israel Palestine, you know, and they wanted to know what the Palestinian position was on negotiations, I would meet with them. And often with Americans, because I had that experience growing up Christian America, I just drop hints about being Palestinian Christian, not from a faith perspective, but that there was this dwindling community that was dying out, like, you know, about 2% at the time of the, of the population. And it wasn't because they were being slaughtered by. Muslims is as popular, you know, in certain, you know, cartoons about um, about Israel Palestine um, or by Jews, for that matter. It's just this this tiny minority. There, there, there's a lot there that is caught in this conflict and has had access. Like my dad got a scholarship to study at a Christian um, university, and so he left and met my mom when he was getting his PhD at the University of Chicago, where my mom was a professor. And so, you know, like there's all sorts of stories like that where you know Palestinian Christians. Had easy access to get out and flee conflict. So I'm telling the longer version of the story. So I'll speed it up. I'm sorry. But long story short was that I, um, you know, first person I was introduced to in an official capacity was a man named Todd Deathridge, who was at the US State Department, Republican, evangelical Christian. He was working at the State and sort of the Human Rights Division, but he eventually became chief of staff for uh, policy planning under Condoleezza Rice. He was previously chief of staff for 15 years for um, Senator Hutchinson from Arkansas. You know, this is somebody given my background, I would not talk to. Like, however, I was outside of the American context. It was no longer like here's this like you know crazy evangelical Christian who you know doesn't believe that women should have. The right to, you know, decide what happens to their lives and their children, or that people, you know, that that people should be able to marry whom they want. Like things are really, really foundationally important to me. That was not the the, the lens that I had. The lens was here's a f- friend of a friend who's coming in an official capacity, and I have to show him the reality that's happening on the ground here. And so in 2004, we spent this day together with another colleague. Um, driving him around, showing the barrier wall fence under construction in Jerusalem at at the time, and how it was dividing these communities up. And he had all this life-changing experience. He didn't suddenly become anti-Israel overnight, but he was like, oh my gosh, like what is happening here? There's massive human rights violations happening here. And how this could be good for Palestinians, this is horrible for Palestinians, but how this could be good for Israel in the long term makes no sense. Guess what? Like, you know, it's a lot of my fellow Christians, fellow evangelicals that are unwittingly and sometimes wittingly supporting this like hardcore pro-Israel policy, which isn't really pro-Israel at the end of the day in his estimation. And so, you know, that that seeded for me this this recognition that, wait a second, like this guy who I put in a box is really sincere and thoughtful. He's on a journey. And so that journey continued for years. I spent four years on the negotiations. I saw him in an official capacity. We really didn't become friends. But, um, you know, four years later, he's leaving the administration. I was leaving the negotiations unit. And I'd, in the meantime, taken Hundreds of American leaders from these backgrounds on these, what for them, you know, just a few hours, what life changing transformations once they saw this reality on the ground that didn't fit the CNN and Fox News talking points. And they had these bottoming out moments. They didn't know what to do when they talked, went home. And I realized like I'd had all these personal relationships with people that I would never talk to otherwise. And then I also realized that they didn't know each other. So there were all these conservatives and liberals that I'd met over the years, had no clue that there were other people thinking and feeling the same way. And I had this idea. I said, like, wait a second. If the problem really isn't a legal issue, if the problem is about movement and what we need out of this is a movement in America, not just in America, but this was one part of that problem that was multi-faith and multi partisan And what was impeding the development of that movement was a lack of care and understanding of this issue. Why don't we get people on the ground? Why don't we get people not just to see my story, which I want them to see, and which is my motivation as a Palestinian whose family is poor and really suffering, like my family, you know, gets the brunt of it, not not like many families in Gaza, but they're not part of this elite class or whatever, but not just for my family, but for Israelis too, Israeli Jews. There's no f- good future for anyone there without a good future for everyone. And so the idea was like, what if we built a movement that could actually shift the way we view this conversation and also build constituency to one day change how America engages from this one-sided approach to an approach which centers the humanity of both Israelis and Palestinians, from Republicans and from Democrats. And I, I was just sharing this with Todd, who was still at the State Department, and to my surprise, this was four years later, he was like, that's not just a great idea, but I had a similar idea. People need to see and experience what I saw, but we can't just leave it there. And I want to do that with you. And so
1: that's how Telos was started. It's pretty cool to meet someone of the same mind. It's pretty rare. Have you found that that you've been able to work together in you know over the years since with that same level of agreement? Has it been a challenge to be a partner? Typically, partnerships are... Are complicated and fraught. They are. I mean, I think
0: every human partnership is complicated and fraught. Um, But, you know, Todd and I have such a strong respect for each other after working together for 12 years. And we see the fruits of our labor. You know, there there were moments that were darker and more difficult than others, as there are in every every relationship. I never had an expectation that Todd would become like, you know, a left of liberal progressive. I knew that wasn't going to happen. And Todd, you know, I don't think he had an expectation that I would become like, you know, a believing evangelical Christian. That as was never going to happen. What happens, like, when we're talking about bridging these divides, and this is one insight that we've really, I mean, we've we've we can prove this um, at Telos. It's you know, it's not about getting people down to sit and talk to people who are different from them. Like, you can do that. Everybody can sit down at a table with people who are different. The the thing is, by getting people to see that they have a shared stake in solving a shared problem, that there's a shared opportunity and a shared risk. And that's why this personal experience is so critical. Like had Todd not had that life-changing experience, he wasn't going to risk. Like, you know, he left the state department. We founded Telos in January, 2009. I moved to DC the week after Lehman brothers failed. Todd had four kids in school. He was leaving a senior position at the state department which for those of you who don't know D.C., that means like money. That means you go into that consultancy lobbying work. So not a political appointee? No, he was a political appointee. So like he was like, you know, at the end of the Bush administration, he had to go. But like that, that meant he could go into the private sector lobbying, get a real salary, you know, not just a State Department salary for the first time in his life. And instead, when we didn't have a dollar in the bank, Because of that life changing transformation in which he felt implicated, which he felt personally responsible that he could not turn away from because of his faith, not despite his faith, he decided to take a risk with his family and join me. And that's why, like, you know, it's, it's when you're talking about, you know, the great battlefield bridging these divides, have to understand that all of us have the capacity to go on a journey. The more we can get to a place where it's like, oh shit. We're really in this together. And yeah, you may you may have different beliefs than I do that are important. Like Todd and I really differ on some issues that are non-negotiable to me, like marriage equality, for example. And there's a real difference there. However, there are a lot of things that we recognize that we can work together on, and we wanted to model this. That was the origin of Telos. It's working wonderfully today. We don't not have our frictions. We're honest about what those points of frictions are. But you know, if you look at one of our, our target groups, for example, um, you know, is younger evangelicals. Like there's there's it's the holy land. These are the constituencies that care. And sometimes when we think about social transformation, we want to will ourselves into a world that doesn't exist rather than engaging the world that does exist, right? And we do that as conservatives, we do that as progressives. But the people who care most about this place and who will care are people of faith and evangelical Christians who've been involved since the birth of the modern conflict more than a century ago. Um, If you look at the polling data now, you know, uh, 2018, evangelicals 18 to 29 years old, between 69 and 74% expressed this hardcore support for Israel and only Israel. 2021, just a couple months ago, that number was down to 34%. And it wasn't that they'd switched to these like hardcore pro Palestine advocates. They're just recognizing that there's more to this story than the traditional sort of like Israel can do no right, no wrong. God gave the land to the Jews and only the the Jews. And they're listening in a new way. And there's a lot of reasons for those shifts in the data, some of which are understood, some of which aren't. But look, you know, we took. 1500 evangelical influencers who speak to millions from this demographic over 10 years they they had life-changing transformations they changed you know their stories and then they came back and spoke differently not just about israel palestine but about their faith and how to engage the quote-unquote other and whatnot and so like you know seeing that evolution in that community and other communities and and seeing that you know part of this work of movement building actually is relationship building, and it's allowing other people to have these journeys. Um, You know, it sounds so airy-fairy, like kumbaya, and it can be if you just leave it there, but it can also be the real path to lasting transformation and ultimately to more just societies and eventually healing.
1: I imagine that there are people who, because of the way we're polarized in this country and over there, that there's a lot of tendency to hear your words and try to put you on a side to say, all right, he's on the Palestinian side. And even if he's kind of covering it by saying, I'm pro-Israeli, I'm pro-Palestinian, I'm pro-America, I'm pro-peace, which I've read on your website, I think there'd be a lot of people who'd be like, no, this is the side he's on. How do you respond to that sort of Imagined reflex that I hear out there.
0: Well, I'd say in some sense. They're right I mean, I definitely do land on a side. I'm on the side for human rights I'm on the side for equality and for justice that said, but I'm also on the side for mutual flourishing I don't think in Israel Palestine whether or back here in the States that it's a zero-sum game So my family's land outside of Bethlehem is currently being expanded upon, you know By one of these illegal Israeli settlements that you can see from our land. We have title going back hundreds of years. And, you know, there's, it's manicured and we've gone without water sometimes for weeks on end. I, you know, I'm just giving you like sort of the, not even the G version of what's happening there. But the point to say that if my family gets their land back and then the Israelis living in the settlement that's built on my family's land suddenly become caged like my family is don't have freedom of movement, don't have civil or political rights, don't have running water. That's not justice. That's not the world that I'm working for or that anybody should be working for. And some of us on either sides are working for, you know, in this dog-eat-dog-winner-take-all paradigm. That's not the paradigm that I'm working for. So I recognize, like, you know, I I want a world in Israel-Palestine, whether it's two states, one state, six states, whatever solutions you want to talk about, the measure is how well does this advance freedom, dignity, security for Palestinians and Israelis in equal measure that's justice. That's the end that I'm working towards. That's the end that I'm working towards here in the United States on the issues that we work in here, I'm not looking to reverse these systemic injustices and make the folks on the bottom on the top. That's not justice. So, you know, people can levy that criticism. And in some sense, they're right, depending on where they're coming from. I will say one thing, though, you know, uh, and this has been my experience growing up Palestinian. The second, like, I even say that I'm Palestinian is a political statement. Like the second that anything comes out of my mouth, oh that's a Palestinian perspective. I'm not allowed to just have a perspective that's informed in my expertise in a variety of different areas. Everything is reduced down to my identity and an identity that I'm very proud of. Oftentimes, when that criticism comes, it's not looking at the substance of what I do and live my life in very extreme circumstances that many people who will accuse me of being one sided have never lived in in <laughs> their entire lives, never experienced. Um, it's often from any telling of a Palestinian story that doesn't criticize a Palestinian story is somehow biased. And that's wrong. We're in a period now where we need to understand, particularly those of us who identify as progressives, that. Every story has a place at the table, even the stories that we don't agree with. Um, and, and those stories, um, they need to be heard on their own merits. That doesn't mean that we need to agree with them or accept them or not condemn them. But how do we get to an inclusive approach to building democracy, building resilient systems with people who legitimately differ and will never agree around some of the fundamentals of what this bizarre reality is that we call life? Um, And so, yeah, like, fine, if you want to condemn me for being one sided, I will own that. But at the end of the day, you know, that's not what I'm working for. I'm working for uh, for mutual flourishing, a reality in which all of us have the opportunity and the agency to succeed on our own terms, not on yours, not on mine.
1: You said very early in this conversation, something about the conflict over there would not persist if it wasn't for the involvement of the United States or something along those lines. That seems like a pretty strong view. Can you explain that? And this
0: actually connects in because like our our work has evolved over the last 12 years that we we work on other issues, including explicitly some of these divides at home, not just on the relationship to Israel-Palestine. That's the origin story. But, you know, Israel-Palestine, that's a conflict we think of as thousands of miles away between Israelis and Palestinians. However, you know, and these are all debatable assumptions. So the the first is that, you know, Israel-Palestine is not just a conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. From its inception, more than 100 years ago, it was a geopolitical conflict. West wanting to take some control over the Middle East. And so, you know, yes, there were Zionists, who you know, wanted to build this Jewish nation state because guess what? Like 19th century Europe saw the rise of this new way of organizing human affairs called nationalism, this idea that there's a French people and they deserve a French state and Italian people, they deserve an Italian state. That was new in the world. That was terrible if you were a minority, particularly if you were Jewish, when you had all of these folks who were saying, well, what does it mean to be French? What does it mean to be Italian? Hey, you Jews, you're actually not really one of us, no matter how... You know how integrated you are, and to you have more in common with each other. And you know this perpetual evolution of these anti-Semitic tropes. And so, Zionism, this idea of Jewish nationalism—that just as the French should have a state of their own, so should the Jewish people have a state of their own—was born. That's not necessarily inherently, um, you know, geopolitical, but it was supported by the British, in particular, and and uh, other forces, as. The Turkish Ottoman Empire was destroyed, came to an end at the end of World War One. I'm just saying all that because there's a lot of geopolitical significance. This has been internationalized conflict from the beginning. Jump ahead to today, um, the United States, from the birth of Israel in 1948 until today, has been a key player with Israel and in the larger region. A lot of those the rationale early on was um, one, you know, uh, atonement for what happened and. To, you know, in the Holocaust, in World War II, that was part of the rationale, even though the movement to establish Israel, uh, the Zionist movement goes back much, much further than that. But in recent decades, there, there was a real shift to the reason we talk about Israel being really driven by domestic political concerns. So what do I mean by that? That sounds really abstract, but think about North Korea's nuclear weapons, for example, classic foreign policy issue, our executive branch takes care of that. It's the president of the State Department. Maybe there's some input from the legislative, the Congress, whatnot, but that's not like the way that policy is shaped and formed. But if you go around our country now, you have lots of interest groups, like people at their kitchen tables. You go tens of thousands of churches have Israeli flags flying in the church people organize around this issue like they would marriage equality, another issue that we've been hinting at um, on this podcast. And, And the point there is that America is a player in this. We send billions of dollars under every administration to Israel primarily, as well as the Palestinians over decades. We shape the entire international community's engagement with Israel Palestine and the reasons we do that is because a lot of americans not every american really cares and you know to get elected you know to congress now this is one of those issues you got to take a position on whether or not you have palestinians or jewish communities that are connected to israel in your in your district and so you know what's interesting about this when you you say that it may sound contr- controversial But that's just a description of the way things are. That the US has been a key player of this conflict for decades now. It's not just Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So if you want to resolve that conflict, obviously ultimately it's Israelis and Palestinians who are going to live out any peace agreement. And there are other international players like Iran and other players in the Middle East and Europe and whatnot. But the US is a key player. It's a critical player, and the world's posture um, turns on how the US engages. And that comes back, not just to US politics, but ultimately US culture. How do Americans think, how do they feel, how do they act on this issue?
1: So how do you think that conflict there intersects with partisan politics here?
0: Well, increasingly so, and particularly during the Trump administration, two things. One, historically, there's been bipartisan, quote unquote, pro-Israel consensus. And I say quote unquote, because You know what it means to be pro-Israel has been evolving. You may have heard of J Street, which is a you know liberal advocacy group, um, primarily um, Jewish, and then to the left of J Street, Jewish Voice for Peace, who've been really challenging what does pro-Israel mean. Um, You know if Israel's moving to the state where there's no possibility of a two-state solution, but. Historically, there's been a bipartisan, quote unquote, pro-Israel consensus. And so, you know, President Obama in his last year passed one of the biggest aid packages for Israel, you know, $32 billion. That was President Obama, who was seen as the, one of the most more critical presidents of some of Israel's policies, like its settlement. But um, what's been happening is there's been increasing partisanship over the last couple decades that was accelerated by Trump. I've revert a lot to evangelical Christians. They have um, some segments, not all segments of evangelical Christians, have a particular theology related to Israel. This was really big in our culture for a number of decades, but didn't really have political expression until the rise of the religious right in the 1980s and wasn't really organized into political force until 1990s, 2000s. And now evangelical Christians are big players um, in the Israel-Palestine space, so much so that many Jewish Americans who are you know, in the traditional pro-Israel space are like waking up and like, wait, what happened? Like, these guys have more influence than Jewish communities do about the Jewish state. Like, what happened here? Um, during the Trump administration made this clear. You may have heard of the US moving its embassy, for example, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Trump said, quote unquote, I did that for the evangelicals. And Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, um, former Vice President Mike Pence, these guys were evangelical Christians who had this particular theology around Israel. And so when they were so public around it, that I think forced the question a lot. Meanwhile, there's been a lot of activism within progressive circles that wasn't there around Palestine before. And I think, you know, through a prism of intersectionality, of connecting various justice issues around. And so more and more you see progressive voices taking up the mantle of Palestinian rights. This was part of the uh, Black Lives Matter platform, for example. And you see politicians like AOC and Bernie Sanders coming out in support of Palestinian rights, and let, lest we be too, you know, laudatory. Whatever your position, if you're for Palestinian rights or for human rights for both Israelis and Palestinians, there's a political rationale as well there because there's been this rise within progressive circles of progressive advocacy for Palestine that makes sense for um, certain politicians who have largely progressive networks to come out in support of human rights for Palestinians too. Now there's a political rationale which didn't exist. What this means now is a once bipartisan consensus around what it means to be pro-Israel Is changing and it's becoming more partisan. So the traditional pro Israel definition um, is housed more and more within Republican and evangelical circles. And now there's a split within within the left, within the Democratic Party. So, you know, President Biden comes from the more establishment, um, you know, Democrats, and and that wing of the party still has this more APAC informed, more traditional pro Israel consensus. The progressive left is now seeing this very differently.
1: It's pretty complicated. How do you navigate, do you think, through that changing morass towards a solution? Well, on Israel Palestine, that's difficult because
0: things have never been less clear. There's no leadership on the ground there. I mean, Israel has been in disarray now, finally, with a new government after four elections in two years. Palestinians haven't had elections in 16 years, and President Abbas. I don't think even enjoy support from President Abbas right now, especially, you know, after ordering like, you know, the 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 murder of a dissident journalist. I mean, this is just absurd what you're seeing like happening in the Palestinian territories, not to mention the split. And then America doesn't want to play a leading role in this right now. So I want to mention two things here. um, because it's important for the listeners. I don't want you to get drowned out in the complexity of like we're talking all all this algebra. I want I want to say Um, one thing on Israel-Palestine and then bring it back to what's happening in the states here. So in Israel-Palestine, we don't have the end zone. I'm not a football fan, but to use a football analogy, like we no longer have consensus around whether even a two-state solution is possible, much less desirable. So there's nothing that we're working towards. So in these periods of ambiguity, okay, yeah, it's so complex. It doesn't mean that the justice issue should be ignored they become that much more relevant. And what was missing was a framework that centers fundamental rights for both Palestinians and Israelis. So there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot of more complexity than when I worked on the negotiations here, but there's a lot that we do know. We do know that there's no good way forward for anyone there without a good way forward for everyone there. So how can we shift the conversation that begins to incorporate human rights into this? That's a win. And when the politics shift, okay, well, then we can piece something together you know, um, to advance that process. This is a multi-generational thing. Anyways, um, that said, I do believe we can see a just resolution to this within our lifetimes and much sooner than we think. But secondly, how this relates to our problems in the US. Um, to come back to uh, you know some of my personal story, like my parents were archaeologists, and when we were driving around the Middle East, they always used to say, "What seems so you know set in stone today, this is going to change." Like power is always shifting, and I don't mean that in a, in a in a negative sense. But what I want people to understand in America is that like it may not feel like you know things will change. But they are changing. They're changing every day. It may not feel like we have agency, but we actually do have agency. How we think and how we talk affects behavior. We're co-creating this reality. And we may feel like our democracy is irredeemably broken. It's not. Trust me, for someone who's lived in places where your voice doesn't matter and and you can get killed for like saying something that somebody doesn't like. Like, no, we actually have opportunity right now. The great battlefield. The biggest lie is that we don't have impact because we do. If you look back and you see how dramatically this world has changed over the last decades for good and for bad. That was driven by people who realized (laughs) that they had a fighting chance. So this is our chance to get into this, like, oh, Israel-Palestine, so complicated. Oh, racial equity, racial justice, so complicated. Yeah, it is. But it's much more complicated if you don't have people of goodwill really doing that dirty work of rolling up their sleeves and advocating for something and also willing to cross these divides that we're not supposed to cross democracy is about building community with people who are different from us. And yes, you know there are real power differentials. Some of us are on the brunt of this. Some of us bear the cost for that. I'm not trying to just whitewash everything pun intended and say that like we're all equal and just like pretend they're no, that's not what we're talking about. What I am saying though is that unless we figure out how to make people who are not allies our allies now, how to change the convictions of some who who support really problematic policies, like we're not doing anything. We're just preaching to our own choir. That has its place building up our own movement. but that's not the only story. There's more work to be done. And for those who have the stomach to do it, You need to get into this work of learning how to engage um, and and work with others who are different um, towards common ends.
1: When I talk to many progressives in this country, they have such a high level of doubt about the right wing in the U.S. that they don't want to talk to them. They don't want to even think about bridging a divide. They want to defeat them or ignore them or wish them away. What have you learned methodologically in dealing with this issue over there and its connection here that we might be able to apply to the deepening divide here?
0: Great, I'll answer that question directly. Just one point I need to emphasize here. The first rule of effective diplomacy the first rule of effective marketing for anything is to actually understand your audience, to see the world as it is, not as you would like it to be. These communities are not going anywhere. So I'm speaking in the negative. Like if you're talking about the Holy Land, forget about working towards a sustainable solution by ignoring the people who care most about this issue. Not gonna happen. Forget about in America, like, you know, ignoring tens of millions of people who are really organized and mobilized. The first practice of peacemaking as I would call it is listen to understand, like to see the world as it is, not as you might hope it to be. And this is just like, you know, when you're going to the doctor and hey, you have cancer. I mean, I hate to like bring in the C word, you got to be honest about what you're you're facing. That's the first step. The second step methodologically, as I hinted at, you know, tell us, you can go on our website and we have these principles of practices of peacemaking that, that articulate like, you know, what are some of the postures that, that that you need to actually engage with integrity? And then how do you do it? Like, how do you practically do it? I hinted at the first one, you know, listening to understand that's not the end. That's the beginning, you know, the first step. And one thing I think that you would find when you do this, not just on a personal level but a societal level is that you will see that these big groups that we put people in just as we're grouped into as like liberal and progressives are highly differentiated. So yeah, you might have like some January 6 insurrectionists, you might have some KKK members and some pro- like you might have all of these people out there that you you, you know <laughs> realistically not going to like make a lot of progress with. But these communities are so divided and differentiated in very important ways. And by painting with one brush, you are relinquishing incredible power and agency. So I, you know, I voted for President Biden. I'll put my politics out there. Was that a vote of like enthusiasm for me? Hell no. (laughs) No, like he wasn't like talking about a platform which excited me I, like, I would have voted for any Democratic candidate in that election, like as a progressive and a Democrat wanting to move beyond Trump. I, I very rarely talk publicly in these explicit terms. But what what I'm saying is that there, there are these real divides here. And many people that I know, because a lot of folks in our network voted for Trump and, and the network that we've cultivated, a lot of the folks that, that I, I work with and I know personally did it in in a, it was a very conflicted manner if they did it, you know, in 2020, it wasn't this enthusiasm for it. They're wrestling with these issues. Like, um, and we see this in, in our our work around, you know, like if you say defund the police, if you talk about social justice terms, that will like really, you know, trigger many folks on the right. And yet like many folks within these communities are starting to ask new questions and they're saying, Oh, I'm starting to get that the America that I thought we had isn't as unified and that maybe there are two Americas. And what I'm suggesting there is that these communities are much more differentiated than they might be. And just as I've gone on a journey, and Nathaniel, we don't know each other, but just as I'm sure you've gone on a journey and all of our listeners have, the the challenge, the superpower here is equipping people who need to go on a journey who hold the keys to go on that journey too. And if you want to isolate certain ideologies, if you want to transform certain ideologies, it doesn't happen. Otherwise, there's no other way to this end point. And yes, this work is not for everyone. It doesn't mean that like, if you're listening to this and you don't want to engage, people who are different than you. Like, no, I'm, I'm not saying that you have to do this. I'm saying that this is part of the package of social transformation. And if you engage and study any successful movement over time, you'll see that it's like an onion. You've got this core and then all of these layers around it. And these layers need to find out how to speak to these different um, segments of of our societies um, and and to work with them and to change them. And we've seen this in our lifetime on a variety of different issues which have transformed.
1: I'm just wondering how do you sort of operationalize this journey that you think people need to take to bridge divides in this country. If I understand you've you've taken people from here to go look at the mess that there is over there and the injustice that they can see very visually over there, how and what can we do over here to bridge between rural Trump land and what they're thinking about this issue and others? and urban progressive world what would you suggest what are you doing I'll I'll share
0: some some steps that we have and these could take a variety of different permutations but you know this is what we do and what we find works we have a three-step process we say immerse train and act so the first step is immersion, um, and this is really critical to understanding the complexity of a variety of issues in human terms. In Israel-Palestine, we take people on these immersive experiences throughout Israel and Palestine. Obviously, it's for a larger purpose. Um, it's not tourism. Uh, we also do the same thing here with many of our alumni in the U.S. South and increasingly other parts of the country, um, too. But that immersion experience, having that personal Transformative experience is key for participants, whatever your background. And all of these experiences are transformative, whether you come in with a liberal or a conservative framework when you're involved in conversations and you have this depth. But that's not the end. That creates a a framework um, for ultimately collaboration. So, the train component comes is like, okay, well, what do you do with that experience? One way that I find effective to um, connect people of difference is not to do it based on, like, hey, you know, you're a conservative and you're a liberal, get together and talk. Sometimes you can do that, but uh, for what purpose? So, for example, what's worked with us um, is we take the alumni from our trips, we take folks on cohorts from specific communities. It's not just like, you know, anybody can sign up. So, I can take folks from, Evangelical megachurches in you know Phoenix and Minnesota with, you know, tech entrepreneurs who are devoutly secular from Silicon Valley. And you can get them in the same room because they've had that same experience where like it's been like, oh my gosh, what's happening in Israel-Palestine, or what's happening around race? Like we're talking about this all wrong. We need to work together. So you get them together to learn how to work together and train them in everything from communications to advocacy. Now, the third step, of course, is action. I need to name something really important when you do this work is that often you're working with really vulnerable communities and these communities that are being exploited already. And going in and hearing people's stories is not something that is without impact. It can be further exploitive of communities that are bearing incredible unbearable costs historically and today. And so you can't do that unless you do that with the right relationships on the ground. And unless this is point pointed to some sort of clear action to say, hey, if we're involved in this this, this process, like w- we're going to help to resolve it. You know, there's a tension there when you bring people on trips or into these encounters, um, that, you know, if you tell them how they're gonna feel, you can't do that up front. Otherwise, they're not gonna go on that journey. But that's why we create a framework where the majority of people who go will have certain experiences, then they'll wanna. Learn to be trained, and then they'll want to act. And acting can look from anything, from writing a novel to you know um, having a really tough conversation with folks to ov- obviously political advocacy and, and all of that. But in that methodology here, like you know, there, there's a lot that we need to refine and learn from. But I can tell you, the the common sort of thread here is this deep shared experience that serves as the basis for a purpose-driven relationship. It's not that I just want to talk to you because you're different. Like anybody can do that. It's like we need to do something together because our lives and our future depends on it. And so I'm not engaging you just because of your difference. I'm engaging you as a partner. And so that's why the immersive experiences um, are helpful as a foundation, but they're not the end, just the beginning.
1: How do you find optimism when you're working at this sort of micro scale with countable number of people. And then there are people like, you know, Donald Trump creating division, being incentivized to create division at scale. How can the people trying to cross the divides and heal compete with the the large forces that are pushing us apart?
0: Two things one sort of just in a practical level and then two on the level of principle. We see this in our work every day where there is so much hunger for this. People are coming to us all the time from these communities that you think don't want to engage these conversations Everybody knows something's up, and a lot of people, there, you know, it's easy to retreat into your tribe. After all, none of us are rational beings. I would suggest everybody read a book if you haven't by Jonathan Haidt, H A I D T, called *The Righteous Mind*. It, you know, it goes into the neuroscience about why, like, when you give people, you know, facts that contravene their beliefs, like climate change or the insurrection or whatever it may be, they they entrench more into their positions. People. We're tribal. Our reason is like a tool that we use after we've formed uh, you know opinions and decisions. That's true for all of us. and we need to be honest about that. But what I'm telling you, I see hope. I'm privileged in the sense that on a daily basis, from these communities that you think are just beyond the pale, people are listening in new ways. There is an opportunity not with everyone, but with significant numbers. And you don't need everyone. You don't need even 50%. Like, you know, Erica Chenoweth at Harvard, who does um, research about sort of successful movement building, says, you know, if you're trying to shift the the conversation and the attitudes and behavior of any demographic, it's it's get 3%, you know, involved, who's really true believers. And And we see this happening. So there is a path to this. This is not, you know, colonizing mars this stuff has been done time and time again it takes time and it's you know it's not easy but it can be done and so that gives me hope and when you say hope and optimism i want to be very clear about w- how i see those terms these are not adjectives they're verbs you know there's a, a great um, friend a palestinian uh, pastor in bethlehem who says hope is what you do it's this idea that like you know it's not it's not an emotion it's not a feeling That's where I find hope, like by being action oriented. Maybe, you know, a lot of what I do is not successful. Fail a lot, a lot of what people do. But the fact of the matter is like, I'm going to act in hopeful ways. I'm going to take the energy that I have. I'm going to go out there and do something because I know that I have an impact. We have this, you know, American culture. We have like all of these like silly aphorisms about like change the world, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the sad and hopeful reality too is that some of them are true. You know, it's not a question of whether we change the world because all of us have impact. That's what this crazy reality is of co-creation. So it's not whether we change the world, it's how. So I'm going to choose not to believe in something, but to act in hopeful ways that to the best of my abilities and the best of my analysis have the capacity to change things for the better, not just for me, but for all of us. And that's how we stay hopeful in moments like this.
1: When you think about other people doing work in parallel to you, who would you think are their, your best allies in terms of groups? Who else out there is aligned and doing good work? Oh, I mean that's
0: such a big question, be, um, and so I'm, I'm going to dodge it a little bit um, <laughs> in a way, but because I, I want I want to communicate something that I think is so often overlooked in movement building circles. Effective movements are highly differentiated. If you don't have prophets like on the front front lines speaking truth to power, you don't have the space for the kind of work that I'm doing here. And it doesn't mean we need to be a like you know if you don't have Black Lives Matter out, you know, really putting these issues in very clear terms on the national agenda, there's nothing behind it. There is no movement behind it. It doesn't mean that like, we have to be aligned in our politics or anything like that. Um, But what I am saying is that for some reason, we're in this moment, we're willfully putting us in these silos. That's hamstringing us. That's hamstringing effective movements because effective movements are really differentiated. Where we have the power to speak is not to the quote unquote other, it's to our own communities. So part of our methodology, like a key part of it, is self-interrogate. I have the most power to speak to my own people, to change our behavior, not your behavior. And that's, that's fundamental because when you look at that in the context of a larger movement, whatever it's for, people... Need to be able to engage their communities where they are, and that can feel frustrating. That can feel like you know, especially if you're bearing the the brunt of a, a power dynamic. But so why I say that when you ask the question about who do I see as my ally? Like they're clear allies and folks that we work with. On a day-to-day basis who are following a similar methodology, but I see the universe of allies as actually much broader than just those people who were working with locked arms. Like I see it as a lot of these activists who are out there in the streets and risking their bodies and their livelihoods in ways which, quite frankly, I'm not, and the people in our network are not. That work is necessary unless you have these folks doing this work, It doesn't happen. Similarly, you know, unless you have folks working the political angle, we are so quick to demonize politics and politicians. But guess what? Like by nature, this is a messy, inefficient process. That's what it means to represent, you know, people with, you know, herd cats or whatever it is, it's never going to be easy. It's never going to be efficient. And it should be inefficient um, in some ways, though, you know, again, when you're talking about resolving historic systemic injustice, like this is an urgent issue. It's not something to push down generations. But again, like that's not a space where we play right now in advocacy. But I see a lot of allies there because, you know, if you don't, built to shifting politics, you're, you're not working on, on movement building. Government's the biggest player in town, whether you like that or not. And so shifting actual law and policy is
1: critical. You've been very generous with your time. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? I, I feel like you asked me like a, a lot. I'm sorry if I went, <laughs> went, went way too down the rabbit hole sometimes. I, I don't think so. You know, I can see that you're someone who's spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff. So it's it's interesting to get a window into where you are and, and what you're thinking. So appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to say? I mean, I'm just curious, like
0: how do you think this is going to land with your audience? Is this going to be? I have no idea.
1: I, I, I never can really tell. So I listen to it again and I edit it and think about it a little bit. I think people will be interested. I think they'll understand a little bit more about what's going on This is just like one of many, many windows into people working hard to try to make the country, the world better. I think people of good spirit honor that and uh, I hope they will honor your voice as well. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me this platform. That was Greg Khalil. Greg is at telosgroup.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.